0: Post-production for this episode of Fruit Bowl is sponsored by Spaces, the new chat-based app for queer people to connect over all the things they're passionate about. And now, for a limited time, you can invest in Spaces for as little as $100 via a WeFunder campaign. Help support this much-needed, safe, digital platform for the LGBTQ community. Look for Spaces in the App Store, and learn more about how you can invest by visiting Queerspaces.com.
1: Welcome to Fruit Bowl, an oral history of queer sex. My name is Ryan Wheaton. I'm an editor and mixer here at Fruit Bowl, and since Dave is this week's interviewee, I'm your host. I started helping with Fruit Bowl in April of this year, and Dave asked me to share a few thoughts about what it's been like to work on this project. After some reflection, the main word that comes to mind is rewarding. I'm constantly amazed at the bravery our guests have to open up about their very intimate experiences, and I feel honored to have the privilege of sharing these stories with the world. Every episode I work on feels like a contribution to queer history. I love discovering the common threads that run through the lives of our guests And feeling the camaraderie that comes when one of those threads intersects with my own life. It's not always easy, though. Making these episodes is a huge process. Everything from cutting out ums and uhs, removing stutter starts, rearranging sections for clarity and impact, to making changes based on interviewee edits, curating and placing music cues, and preparing a final mix, all take a tremendous amount of time and effort. Honestly, sometimes I find myself questioning why I do it. But in the end, I think the answer is simple. Our stories need to be told. At one point in this week's episode, Dave mentions that because no one else is going to do it for us, he believes it's our duty as queer people to share each other's stories. And that statement really resonates with me. That principle helps give me the determination to continue gathering your stories and present them to those who choose to listen. I feel grateful for this opportunity, and I thank you for listening. Speaking of sharing some thoughts and stories, over on the Spaces app... People have been discussing different perspectives on sex outdoors. Topics include privacy versus the thrill of getting caught, the realities of consent, as well as what the law has to say regarding outdoor sex. Join the conversation in any of the four Fruit Bowl-sponsored areas by downloading the Spaces app today. Thank you to everyone who supports the show on Patreon. We're currently holding steady at 47 patrons who combined provide $304 a month to help pay for website maintenance, transcription services, and promotional efforts. If you'd like to help support the show financially, you can do so at fruitbowlpodcast.com donate. And you can always support the show for free by leaving a review on your preferred podcast platform or recommending the show to a friend or fellow podcast listener. As I mentioned earlier, Dave is the subject of today's episode. He and I conducted the interview just like any other, recording in his bedroom and using the same list of questions. During the editing process, Dave realized that there are a couple moments that he wanted to elaborate on, sort of like audio footnotes. When those moments occur in the episode, you'll hear this sound, and that will be your cue that the next portion was not recorded as part of the original interview. You'll hear the sound again once we get back to the original audio. Before we start, I have to mention that this episode contains a description of sexual assault. And now, here's Dave.
0: I tried my hardest. I was like, I can't make a move. It just can't happen. He has a boyfriend. And the second he touched me, I was just like off to the races because <laughs> like I finally had some kind of indication that he actually was interested in me physically.
2: This is Fruit Bowl, an oral history of queer sex.
0: My name is Dave, I'm 49 years old, and I graduated high school in 1991.
2: This episode was recorded in August of 2022 in Seattle.
0: I grew up in Derby, Kansas, which is a suburb of Wichita, Kansas, the largest city in Kansas suburban, very white. There were a lot of Air Force kids. There was an Air Force base nearby. And then also Boeing had, at the time, a huge manufacturing plant there. It was their only major you know, manufacturing location other than Seattle. So a lot of people whose parents were in the armed forces or were nerdy airplane engineers. That okay. was kind of the bulk of the kinds of people that were my neighbors (laughs) only had one high school i knew all my friends from kindergarten all the way into high school we were pretty tight knit community it's not a very rural part of kansas Um, it's pretty cosmopolitan compared to the rest of the state which is more agriculturally focused and so i just like to tell people that straight up like i I was not a farm boy (laughs) even though i was from kansas It was definitely conservative because, you know, the Midwest, a lot of church-going type people. I will say this, there weren't quite the culture wars then that there are now in people dividing up between red and blue. We were all pretty much just neighbors and didn't really talk about politics that much, if at all. I mean, we would discuss politics in high school and I would, you know, Keep informed but yeah there just wasn't the focus of that sort of conflict that there is now so it was a pretty congenial place to be in terms of the politics of the place people people just sort of like lived their lives but yeah growing up it was just a bunch of people who were pretty much all white and all christian so you know not a lot of friction there for better or worse My family was not typical of uh, my neighbors in that my parents were both college professors. Definitely would have been labeled democratic liberals if that sort of label was applied often back then, which it wasn't. I mean, we, like I said, we were just kind of like the average Derby family. Yeah, so mom and dad who met when they were in college at K-State, they both grew up in Kansas. Married in college are still married now. They still live in Derby, although they've moved away from our original home. I do go back from time to time to my hometown to visit them, which is a pretty surreal experience. <laughs> our whole family was United Methodist, so we would go to church every week, sometimes twice a week. I do have one sister. She's 3 years older than me. Very cool. I love my sister. She's probably the member of my family I get along with best (laughs) and we were raised in the same home all our lives until each of us graduated high school so it was a pretty consistent childhood you know I did know queer people but I didn't know they were queer until years later basically there were two teachers I had in grade school who are gay men who were always super nice to me and very kind to both me and my sister. We look back on their teaching fondly. There was a very popular beautician in town and he was married to a woman, but I think everyone in town was like, yeah, that's not really a thing. I mean, everybody liked him. There weren't people who were hostile towards him. I mean, he made women look beautiful, so you know. That trumps everything with women in the Midwest and the South. Like if you're gay, but you can make them look amazing, then that's pass. There was a pretty effeminate guy a year ahead of me in school that everyone knew was gay. Turns out he was gay. And he was just one of those guys who couldn't hide it. Even if he tried, I was a little more on the down low. So he sort of got the brunt of the attention good or bad, mostly bad, with labeling him gay. I stayed as far away as I could from him because I was worried about being guilty by association. The thing is, I think that my co-students knew I was gay. (laughs) Like, because after sophomore year, I didn't really date girls at all. I just gave up any sort of attempt at acting straight, I didn't act gay either, or so I thought, but, but I, I don't think I was quite a, as good an actor as I thought, because like, no, there's just a few things people would say. I remember our choir went to New York city for like this concert and we were kept very close track of, you know, we couldn't wander. So there were only a few moments where we were sort of out on the street waiting for the bus to come pick us up or whatever. And I remember once um, this guy passed by me and some girls in my choir were like, David, that guy checked you out. (laughs) And I remember being so dumbstruck, like what? Like both excited and also terrified that they would have like thought that that was information I wanted to know about. I just thought that was a telling moment. I was like, looking back, I'm like, yeah, they pretty much all knew I was a big flaming homo, probably. There was a definite, like, hesitation to talk about anything connected to sexuality in my home. My parents were not the kind of people who would bring up anything remotely connected to anything sexual, both straight or gay, especially not gay. Um, it just wouldn't have been on their radar. The exception being when I was in grade school, my mom's stepmom, her son, uh, was an early casualty of AIDS. And because my granddad had remarried, you know, I never really knew her children. My grandma, we called her Bill, <laughs> Grandma Bill's kid. Doug. His name was Doug. He was awesome. He was super cool. I mean, I'm very sad that I never really knew him. My mom grew up an only child, so she never was really actually cohabiting with Doug. By the time mom knew Doug, he lived in San Francisco and was likely totally out. You know, in Derby, (laughs) if there was any mention of San Francisco, it was with a gay subtext. Like, Where I grew up, if you left and went to San Francisco, that meant you were gay. Like, there was no confusing that. It's just funny how with kids, like, that's the designation. But um, with Doug, it was true. (laughs) I met Doug only once. He spent Christmas with us. This was before I think he was diagnosed with AIDS. And he was a lovely person and bought me my first Lego set. After that, I was a huge Legos fan. But, um... You know, at the time I was too young to really understand what gay was. This is like grade school, third or fourth grade. But it was only like sixth grade that he died. So his diagnosis and his illness must have been very compressed and fast. They never told me how Doug died, I guess because they were protecting me. I was instructed about AIDS in sixth grade. I knew what it was, but they just couldn't bring themselves to tell me that that's why Doug died. I'm sure that Doug's death and the silence surrounding it is one of the many things I experienced growing up that has informed my mission with producing Fruit Bowl. Silence about queer lives and queer death means that our stories are forgotten, and recording our histories on our own terms provides us with a resource that could be used for generations to come. When he was buried, they brought him back to Kansas, which to me was shocking because, like, he had such a deep connection to San Francisco. He was in the leather community and worked for Diane Feinstein. I went to the funeral, and I could sense that, like, the priest didn't really know how to position his death, didn't really know how to address it. Years later, after his death and after my grandma passed and my grandparents' stuff had all been sort of dispersed among the family, my mom really wanted me to have some of Doug's stuff. And she gave me his silver set which was really cool but then she gave me all of these uh packages with pictures from his past and there was one group of pictures of him with my grandma and her sister in hawaii with another guy who i'm sure was doug's partner but they just look like they're having the time of their lives which made me love my grandma even more she was like a lovely person she never had a bad word to say about anyone I would have expected nothing less from Grandma Bill, you know, and she seemed like the kind of person who would accept her son without hesitation, even in the 80s. So I I think back on that fondly. I'm also interested if any of my listeners knew my uncle, Doug D. Young. I have longed to hear more stories about his life from friends of his who knew him. Sadly, I fear most of them have likely passed on, either from AIDS or old age. When I was in grade school, probably around third or fourth grade, I had a babysitter whose boyfriend came over. I have no memory of him at all, actually, except for he must have had a really funny sense of humor because he convinced me that the way you had sex was through your fingertips. (laughs) <laughs> and i believed him because i didn't know what sex was and he said it was such authority i actually thought it for years that he might have actually been right <laughs> because again like not only was my family not talking about gay people they were also not talking about sex really
1: what did he say it was what did you think it was
0: <laughs> he only just said people have sex through their fingertips Uh, You know, he he showed me his fingertips and they were calloused for some reason. So because he had some kind of like physical evidence of it, I was like, oh, okay, sure. Um, (laughs) So I was grossly misinformed about that. Then... Maybe a year or two later, maybe sixth or seventh grade, my family would go to uh, Colorado in the summer times to a summer house there. And we could spend the whole summer there because they were both teachers and had the summer off. So I made a friend there who was my age. And we would occupy ourselves just like wandering around and digging holes and, you know, forts and tree houses and such. And once we found a penthouse magazine underneath a rock and... It was definitely eye-opening for me. This was before I even knew about what masturbation was, but the pictures themselves were pretty degraded and not really erotic in the way that I had hoped, I guess. But it was the letter section that really like got my crank turning. The descriptions of sex and different places that it could be done and, and the descriptions of it are very like, definitely made an impression. Yeah. The first movie I ever saw with any mention of queer people or queer sex and sexuality was a course line. We definitely went to the Crest Theater in Wichita, which was a beautiful one-screen theater. That was the most special place to see movies in my hometown. I miss that theater dearly. It was just so special to see movies there. I saw Tootsie there. I saw E.T. there. You know, it's like a movie palace where you remember the movies you see there. And, And they definitely took us to see A Chorus Line there. And in A Chorus Line, there are two or three queer characters at varying degrees of being out. It's a very beautifully crafted film in that it does have this small group of people that represent a much larger portion of the theater community. The big emotional moment of that film is when Paul, the queer character, comes in after all the other dancers have gone downstairs, and he's finally ready to tell the director his story, you know, and couldn't bear to tell the story about how when he was a kid, his father took him to theaters in 42nd Street. And because he didn't have Glasses, he had to sit closer to the screen, and men would come and, you know, molest him during the movies that he would watch with his family. Back in the day before Giuliani cleaned it up, Times Square and the 42nd Street Theater District had proscenium stage theaters where all the Broadway shows are produced, as well as porn theaters and regular movie theaters that would show Hollywood films. In a chorus line, The gay character, Paul, describes being taken by his father to a regular, non-porn theater to watch movies. Obviously, it made a deep impression on me as a young person. Just the fact that there was somebody on screen saying that they were gay and also describing an experience of sexual awakening, also violence, Um, it's not a very pretty picture. Before seeing the film, I wasn't even sure that queer people existed. It is unfortunate that this first introduction to queerness had such a loaded context, but it definitely synced up with how most of the people around me also framed queerness as something shameful that is used to prey upon the young and the helpless. Fortunately, there are other queer characters in a chorus line that are a lot less conflicted about their sexuality. And I still have a deep appreciation for the film and the musical. But, I mean, he's not a character who's looked down upon, you know. He's also, I think the movie does a good job of it not being a pity party either. You know, he's coming out in a very powerful way. So, yeah, that made a deep impression on me. Also, I saw in that same theater Victor Victoria around that same time, which also has out gay characters in different, stages of of their living out and proud. I rewatched both of those musicals recently and they definitely hold up. They're very well done.
2: <laughs>
0: My dad attempted to have the talk with me. I say attempted because he was by nature not someone who talked at all. <laughs> he is a very quiet person. And now looking back, I have a certain amount of compassion for him because at the time when I was in eighth grade and he had the talk with me, all he really opted to do was sit me down and hand me a pamphlet that was a sexual informational package of sex and sexuality around the time of puberty and coming of age and just sort of different topics that are important to that. But it wasn't more than like a couple of pages long And I actually kind of really appreciated the brevity, (laughs) you know, I didn't really want to know all that much. And for the longest time, I wished my dad had been able to have more of a conversation looking back because I clearly needed it. I was very conflicted and confused at the time. I definitely knew I was gay when he gave me that pamphlet, but I wasn't gay enough that I knew what masturbation was because... (laughs) I had never actually known what it was or how to do it until Dad gave me that pamphlet. (laughs) And it went into enough detail that I learned how to do it. And the first time I ever did it was right after Dad left the room and gave me that pamphlet and I looked it over. I was like, oh, yeah, okay, I want to try this. And then I did it. (laughs) So, like, I have my dad to thank, that sounds weird, for teaching me how to masturbate. (laughs) Before starting work on Fruit Bowl, I used to have a pretty low opinion of my dad and his lame attempt at having the talk with me by giving me a pamphlet, which, by the way, had been printed by a Christian organization. But after interviewing so many people about their parents, I now know that my dad's efforts were actually way more proactive than other people's parents, and I actually really respect him for making any effort at all. Um, Because most people's parents don't and don't get me started about the dismal state of sex education in general Looking back that brief interaction with my dad and the pamphlet itself was more than sufficient for what I needed at the time And I'm thankful that I got it when I did and to be quite honest I probably didn't want to have more of a conversation with my dad So he did just enough which looking back is quite a lot I was a very enthusiastic masturbator. I was having a lot of fun finally. Before I learned to masturbate, I did know that there were like pleasure zones in the groinage area. <laughs> yeah, so my parents had this vibrating pillow that they gotten from like one of those TV ads and it was supposed to help your lower back. I guess my dad had back problems. And yeah, I used to love to just turn that pillow on and just like Put it in my lap, and sometimes I'd do it while I was having like a conversation with my parents. Like they just they didn't think about it in the way that I was experiencing it. But I was just like, yeah, this feels very good. But I wasn't masturbating back then, you know. Until like I said, Dad gave me the pamphlet. I used to use my parents master bathroom for my morning showers. Like, I would go in there and lay on the floor and jerk off like twice before going into the shower. (laughs) It it would take no time for me to do it. But it definitely took enough time for that. I'm sure my parents were like, what the fuck is he doing in there? Or they knew exactly what I was doing in there and they decided to just let me have my fun time, you know? Um, (laughs) But yeah, I definitely wasted a lot of water (laughs) waiting for that. Jerk-off session is be over. Oh God, I had so many crushes on so many famous people and movie stars and stuff. Probably my first crush of a famous person was Josh Brolin's character in Goonies. Oh God, he was like the hot older brother type. The guy in Gremlins. Chips. The TV show about Southern California <laughs> Highway Patrol <laughs> the Dukes of Hazzard embarrassingly, but yeah, they were sort of Prototypical hot country boys. Those were the big ones. Yeah. My biggest crush growing up though was This guy who was my age. He he kind of came into town late so I befriended him you know, just as a sort of a gesture, as somebody who had lived there all their lives. We became pretty good friends. His dad was the preacher at the local church. So he was a preacher's son. (laughs) And we actually had a sleepover once as kids. And the next day, he didn't talk to me. And he actually didn't ever talk to me after that. Like for a really long time, and we basically broke up as friends. I have no recollection of what happened at that sleepover that might have spooked him or upset him. I wonder, did I make a move? Did I do something that was construed as a move? Or Did he do something? After we graduated high school, and I was well into my second or third year of uh, college. I actually was driving through a town where he had moved to, and and I called him to meet up in person, and we did. It was all very civil, you know, but towards the end of being there, I actually told him, I was like, look, you know, I don't know why we stopped being friends. And I remember asking him, do you remember? And he didn't say anything, which was like so maddening because I wanted some kind of clarity. This whole description of my experience with my crush is a perfect example of the culture of silence I grew up with when dealing with queer topics or experiences. Conversations about queerness were to be avoided at all costs. And this is just one of the many reasons I worked so hard on Fruit Bowl. Silence is erasure. It gives people an opportunity to just treat queerness as a fiction and something that doesn't happen or only happens to other people. And as a result, our stories disappear. But yeah, I think maybe at some point something happened that might have set off some alarms. I don't know. It's very strange to have that gap. I felt really burned by his ghosting me, what we call ghosting now. And it definitely hurt my feelings and made me hesitate to really reach out to people who I didn't already know. We went to boarding school in Salzburg, Austria for a year. This was for my eighth grade year. I was 14 years old and basically a walking hormone. I definitely knew that I was gay at this time, but I was really trying hard not to act on it or even to think about it in any way. It was a real culture shock for me, also being so young. I had never ever lived outside of my hometown. I mean, I'd visited other states, but never, yeah, I don't think I'd ever gone out of the country. And then I was uprooted (laughs) and taken to a boarding school, which I never, ever had any experience with a boarding school, much less a different country. The reason this whole thing happened is my mom got a Fulbright scholarship to teach in Bulgaria for the year. And instead of like leaving us with our dad, she decided to <laughs> enroll us in boarding school in, in Austria. And there were no English language schools in Bulgaria. A lot of diplomat families sent their kids to the boarding school where we were going in Austria, in Salzburg, it was called SIPS, Salzburg International Preparatory School. I used to hold it kind of a grudge against my mom for doing that, for uprooting me at at an age that I think is hard for anyone. But now looking back, I think I did learn a lot about self-reliance that year. Not want to say that I became a loner, but I became more comfortable with just being by myself. So at the school, all the girls lived in the actual school building in dormitories like you would consider them typical of any college campus. But then the men lived in gas houses like all along the this street called the Moosstrasse. And so each house was almost like a little frat, you know, and they had different clusters of kids at them and because I was the youngest boy in school they roomed me with the freshman and they just happened to room me with literally the the hottest guy in the school who was American who was just gorgeous and my little gay brain couldn't compute like the fact that I had been given this opportunity to be his roommate and you'd think that the story would be all happiness and rainbows because of that, but I was actually, like, terrified that I would do something that I wouldn't be able to control myself because the hormones were just raging for me around eighth grade. And so not only was I roommates with the hottest guy in school, but then one night in, like, the first week of school, he wanted to jerk off together. (laughs) Any other gay guy would have been like, hell yeah, let's do that. But I was just like... I can't and so I requested to get transferred to another room (laughs) which I did I got transferred to a, a single in a house with guys who I would never be friends with you know which made me even more separated than I already was and you know looking back I was just scared my little gay brain couldn't deal with the fact that the hottest guy in school wanted to jerk off with me at night you know and looking back I'm like oh god Could that have escalated, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Like, uh. After that school year was over, my mom's big idea was to take the family on a cross-European journey in a camper trailer, which was actually really cool. I mean, it was this thing we could just go anywhere, and we went to Switzerland and Denmark and the Netherlands. We were about to get our flight back home to Kansas. And I think at the time, again, I was like a one big walking hormone. And I I think I might have thought that it was my last opportunity to like hook up with somebody in in Europe and finally get that sort of sexual experience that I'd never had before. We were staying in this hotel near the airport and I had seen these two guys in the lobby that were clearly together. And then I saw them go into a room down the hall from my hotel room. And, (laughs) oh God. And I wrote them a letter asking them to come to my room to have sex with me. (laughs) What an idiot. And slid it under their door. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, looking back, I'm just like, oh my God, I was nuts. And they wrote back like a funny sort of apology it was actually quite sweet. I don't remember it being, like, mean or anything, but it was just like, no, thank you. <laughs> don't you want to get arrested? Like, <laughs> so it was really an odd, odd year. For queer people, there's a lot of firsts and this is going to take a while (laughs) because I have a lot of firsts. The first time I ever saw or experienced anyone cruising in a public space was in the bathroom of the mall that was closest to where I lived was the mall that we all went to all the time to do all of our shopping where I would see movies and go to the arcade and stuff. And um, there was one restroom adjacent to the food court that was like tea room central, you know, it was just like constant cycle of guys going in and out and cruising. And um, it was really obvious what was happening, not only because of people lingering and going in and out and definitely malls back then were like a hub of sexual activity, I think because you could like break up with who you were with and like go do your own thing for a while. So there were opportunities for men to maybe go get some on the side when their family was shopping I don't know but the first time I ever experienced was when I was in the bathroom and in the stall and a guy was tapping his shoe I probably didn't know it was happening then but then he actually physically looked underneath the stall divider and I was just like gobsmacked I I couldn't believe somebody would do that and I was like okay that just happened. Why did that happen? So yeah, that's how it sort of started. And then like that was sort of pre-independence driving. So then once I accessed the car, I discovered all these different parks in Wichita that had cruising zones. The good ones to go to were always in a more urban part of Wichita or at the fringes where there wasn't a lot of suburban community visitorship. They were out of the way. In Wichita, there's this center area where the Arkansas River goes. We call it the Arkansas River, not the Arkansas River. A very beautiful public space with a lot of public parks and very winding streets and wooded areas. You know, So that was always a good indication of a cruising zone, as if there were parking opportunities, but also wooded areas or open restrooms. So... I would say probably my first blow job was at a uh, public park, like in in my car or in someone else's car, both giving and receiving, probably like nothing much more than that ever happened during cruising. It was pretty much mutual masturbation or oral cuz there was it was just too risky to try to do anything else, or anything more than that. So those were sort of my first that are fuzzy and not with people that I even knew their name. Yeah, I was deeply, deeply ashamed and guilty. I was a Methodist, so it wasn't quite the fundamentalist, Pentecostal, born-again stuff that it could have been in Wichita or Derby. But there were sermons at my church where it was made very clear to us that living as a gay person is not cool. By the way, this same pastor who had so forcefully condemned the homosexual lifestyle because it went against Christian teachings, well, a couple of years later, he ended up running off with his church secretary and abandoning our congregation and his family. So, you know, a great example of living as a good Christian. So yeah, I had a lot of conflict about my gay sexual urges the places to cruise in, in Wichita were between my church and home. And church was often like my out because I did go a lot to choir practice and stuff. And I, yeah, I was very conflicted about having the opportunity to do them on my way home from church. But, you know, I was horny and I was also very lonely And I think I thought that maybe in between hookups with randos that I'd never see again, maybe I would find somebody who I would want to see again and who was my age, you know. Cruising in Wichita was actually very active. There was a pretty large cruising culture. I think because there were so few other outlets for queer people, especially gay men, to meet. There's, of course, a lot of shame in that people were in the armed forces or you know, had deep Christian beliefs. So uh, there were a few different cruising locations all around town. And you would basically just do circles in your car and kind of circulate, or you would park and watch people. And those were the two different perspectives of visual acknowledgement of the other person So, you know, if you looked at someone for long enough as they passed by you or after they passed by you, you would hit the brakes so that your brake lights would go on. (laughs) That was something that was an indication of wanting to meet that person. Or if it were like a public toilet, you would see the toes tapping next to you in the stall. That is a real thing that people did. Often police would come by and bust people That never happened to me personally, but there would be cops who would make their own drive-bys clearly in an effort to intimidate people to leave. You know, I do have some regret about doing this sort of thing in public spaces. Like, not everyone is consenting (laughs) when you're cruising. There's a very good chance you could look at someone who's not cruising and make assumptions just because they're there. So it wasn't a perfect system, obviously. And sometimes I would put myself in danger once there was a guy who was on a motorcycle who was driving around one park the same as me. And I guess I must have done something or not looked at him or not reciprocated an an indication on his part, I don't know, something that set him off. And he followed me home to Derby where my family lived. And i knew right away that he was following me he was definitely trying to intimidate me and i was frightened because i didn't want him to know where i lived but the good thing was that i was actually driving a malibu chevelle that was passed down to me from an aunt who died and it was the fastest car i've ever had in my life (laughs) it was like a v8 and you could go from zero to 60 in seconds and I lost them. It was like something out of a movie, or at least felt that way to me. And I knew every street of my hometown like the back of my hand. I'd grown up there and rode my bike all the so I knew where to lose them. But the fact that I finally did was such a relief because I didn't know what I was going to do if I had to pull into my home's driveway and run to the entryway and hide, you know? <laughs> so that was scary. It was uh, late at night and I was definitely coming back from somewhere in Wichita, going home. I got into a habit of just always kind of doing a drive-by, especially of this one park where I'd had particular success. You know, each of the parks would vary in terms of the number of guys there and what they would and would not be willing to do, but they were almost always older than me and sometimes very much older, which, you know, Is pretty predictable if you think about it and you know like I said I think in addition to wanting to get off part of the reason why I would go to cruise these parks is because I just really wanted to meet other gay people I was so alone and the other gay guy in my high school was not the person who I would go and talk to for any reason you know so yes i would go to these parks to get off but sometimes i would want to like have a conversation and it just was never in the cards you know so one night i went and did a drive by and stopped and i saw a kid my age who was like wandering around the bathrooms in this public park and i was very excited i was like i'd never ever seen it. he was definitely cruising that much I knew. I was, I got very good at spotting people cruising wherever I went. It's almost like I had like a sixth sense. I just got so that I could read people really well. And so I knew that this kid was there for the same reason I was. And he was uh, riding a dirt bike. So that was another clue that he was my age. And he just looked my age, you know. So, like, I went up to him and started talking to him, like, out in the open. We didn't even go inside the bathroom. I actually don't think we could have, it was probably locked. There was very little back and forth, but then we started to, like, fool around right there in the open. So, right from the start, there was this sort of terror, but also really sexually excited. That's a very powerful stew (laughs) for anyone. You know, I think it's why some people like public sex is because there's the charge, you know, there's this element of risk. Um, Also, I felt like I really had to take advantage of the opportunity to just be with somebody who was my age. So things escalated very quickly. And before I knew it, he spun me around and started fucking me right there, out in the open. And I was so caught off guard and so just in shock that he just kept doing it. He just kept going, you know, no lube. It was rape. I was being raped. Um, There's really no other word for it. And it's taken me a while to, like, give it that label because I think that I didn't want to for the longest time because I was, like, so ashamed of it happening and me letting it happen and not fighting back. But the truth is that I just didn't have the tools to do it at the time, to fight somebody off. And it hurt. Um, It scared me. I was terrified. Also, I felt so cheated of an opportunity for meeting somebody that was my age, that somebody who I thought could have been a friend or somebody who I could have trusted or even been with, ended up hurting me more than anyone ever had. I'd never even gotten in fights at school. So I'd never had an experience of somebody exerting physical abuse onto me. But yeah, so I'd never even experienced any kind of violence until that moment. So I I also just couldn't identify it for what it was, which was rape. So it was over just as quickly as it started. And he just left, you know, he had a very fast out with his bike. And I don't recall driving home that night. I was definitely in shock. The first thing I remember getting home is that my parents had already gone to sleep. You know, I think I must have been old enough that they didn't really care about a curfew or anything like that. But I went to use the bathroom and uh, looked at the toilet paper and there was blood. And, oh God, I never felt so scared in my life. I was terrified that I had gotten HIV. AIDS and that maybe there might have been some internal damage, you know, but I couldn't do anything about it. Definitely would not have been able to go to my parents or ask them to take me to the doctor. You know, he came inside me. I'm sure he did. And I knew enough then to know that that was a definite risk, you know, so I didn't do anything. (laughs) I just prayed, you know, probably literally prayed that I would be okay. And I was. I mean, I'm not traumatized by it now. I think I've learned enough. I've been in enough therapy and talked through it enough with therapists and and with also myself to make peace with it. But I would say that that moment was the defining reason why I work so hard with Fruit Bowl is because I don't ever want any young person to ever put themselves into that position, you know, not only where they could be on the receiving end of sexual violence, but then that not ever having anyone to talk to about it. Like, that is something I don't ever want to happen to anyone. Um, And it did happen to me. And I'm glad to finally share it in a meaningful way and to have, have given myself this platform for it to be heard. I think that's all I ever wanted when I was a young person was to talk to somebody and ask them questions about what their life was like and how they matured as queer people and how they made their discoveries. Like that's all I ever wanted then. And that's all I ever want now is to just share those stories because I think they're super powerful and queer people are not able to wait around for straight people to do that work. We have to do the work ourselves. It's our job to put our stories out there. No one else is going to do it for us. And I've just decided that I'm going to contribute to that archive of stories. So after the assault, I pulled back from cruising. I graduate high school finally, and I decide to stay in Derby instead of going out to my parents' cabin. And my dad stayed with me, I think. Maybe it was my mom. But um, I had a part in a Shakespeare in the Park play. (laughs) I was Ariel in The Tempest which is a part, by the way, that is usually reserved for a a female. (laughs) I was a fairy (laughs) for a summer. Not a lot of glamorous production, but it was a pretty cool gig. You know, I would go back and forth from different locations. So I had, again, some opportunities driving myself back and forth from plays. So I decided I would get tested before going to undergrad. I, I wanted to know if... I was HIV positive after the rape. So I go to the public health department in Wichita and, gosh, that was an eye opening experience. You know, I'd only ever been to my family doctor in a hospital and to walk into a public health department in Wichita was like to have a, a window onto a completely different side of Wichita that I'd never seen before. They were perfectly nice. But I went there hoping for anonymity and some discretion because I was getting tested supposedly to my family and all my friends. I was a virgin. Nobody thought I was sexually active. So I go there and I'm like sitting in the waiting room and this friend of my family's walks through the lobby and obviously sees me. He went to church with us and to his credit, he didn't say anything. I mean, maybe he should have. Maybe he could have offered to help me, but I was relieved. I was like, oh my God, I thought I was going to be completely anonymous. It's hard to be anonymous when you grow up in one town all your life and your parents are both teachers. Like you get the feeling that you know everyone. So I go and get tested and I come back the next week and it's positive and I was like in shock. I couldn't believe it. I'm like having a panic attack now just thinking about it. And the woman who gave me the test, she's like, okay, wait to freak out. We're going to confirm this. Because then there were no oral tests. It took a week to take any kind of blood test. But I was just like, fuck, my life is over. I'm just like starting and it's already over. You know, this was at the height of the AIDS epidemic. There was probably the most deaths in the late 80s, early 90s. This is 1991. Really just a brutal time. I think, even more so than maybe the beginnings of the plague uh, epidemic in the 80s, because by the 90s, the writing was on the wall, we all knew how much of a devastation it was going to be, you know, and there was no escaping it. There were the cocktails now or any kind of the, the care options you can get now. So I went and just was in shock for a week and couldn't tell my parents, cried a lot, did a lot of like walking around by myself, didn't tell anyone until I went back the next week. And it turns out it was a false positive. (laughs) And that was a real mind fuck too. Because I was just like, what? Like, that's impossible. Like, when they first gave me the first result, that was shocking. And then when they told me a week later that it was negative, actually, that it was equally shocking. I was just like, huh. And, like, I still don't know how I managed to do it all alone. Yeah, looking back on it, it just feels so like it was from a movie or something. It sounds like it's from a movie. I do look back and I think, why did that happen to me? I don't really believe in God anymore or even astrology or any higher power, but I will say that, like, just that whole event, it was a life changing experience for me. And it does drive a lot of what I do in terms of my own personal, professional ambition. So I spent most of my adolescence, when I was able to drive, like, cruising in parks, you know, now and then. And after the rape, pulled back and didn't really do it much, but still longed for some kind of connection to somebody my age, you know. And it wasn't unheard of that there would be people my age cruising. Like, that did happen, And one day drove past and saw this guy my age talking to a friend of his, a girl. They were clearly, like, in high school like me. And there was something about his physicality that I was just like, okay, he's definitely a gay guy, you know, just here with his girlfriend. And so I drove past, and I, like, remember daring myself to get out and talk to them because I just had enough by that time. I just was sick of feeling so alone. So I did. I parked and I went and started randomly having a conversation with him. Which, looking back now, I'm just like, wow, that took a lot of guts on my part. I It's just not something I would do, ever. And it turned out that he was gay. And I think at some point the girl left as a sort of a wingman move. And um, got his number and we went on a date. Like, a real fucking date. Which was super fun because we... Decided to go to the Dollar Theater and see Madonna's Truth or Dare. <laughs> Which meant that we were the only people in the theater. <laughs> and it was cool because, like, got to hold hands. And you know, I think we probably made out a little bit in the movie theater. I had, like, a glimpse of the beginnings of what it would be like to actually date somebody, you know. And while we were seeing each other, we realized that both our families had cabins in Colorado literally like 20 minutes from each other <laughs> so we actually got to meet up in Colorado it was super awkward because both our moms dropped us off like I think the moms wanted to meet each other just and I was just like oh god really I'm a senior like why are you doing this and so they met and it was super awkward Maybe his mom might have known what the deal was, but my mom was just like, whatever. She, she, she didn't know at that point. Yeah, and so we just like hung out and I, we did have sex that day. It was very awkward because we had to do it before his mom came back. Or, you know, anyway, it was just very fortuitous that that happened. I think at the time I was like, oh, this is a sign. <laughs> you know how you do when you're in high school. In high school, I was fortunate to have been best friends with, like, the art nerds and the musicians and the choir kids and the band and theater people. Like, I had a pretty decent high school experience outside of the whole sexuality realm. It was still pretty fun, and I was really lucky to have been friends with that group. Because I think that there wasn't really the emphasis of girlfriends with them. It was more about just hanging out and being silly and driving around at night, listening to (laughs) D-Light. And then also my friend knew about Morrissey sooner than anybody else. So, yeah, we had fun. It was a good group to be connected to. So I don't want to give this impression that it was all traumatizing experiences, cruising. I I had a good core group of friends. I was going to school at SMU in Dallas. My freshman year roommate was this really cool guy who made it very obvious to me, even from our first week of living together, that he was totally cool with queer people and didn't give a shit. I think because we were in the theater floor, the arts floor, And there were other people on my floor that were gay. And I'm sure he said something like, oh, you know, Chad's gay. That's totally cool. So I came out to him right away. But like, it just so happened that one of my best friends from high school lived in the same dorm on the same floor as me. Didn't come out to my friend from high school for like months. (laughs) I just could not bring myself to have that conversation with him. And eventually he just like, came into my room one day and just like wouldn't leave <laughs> you know and I was like do you have something you, you want to say to me <laughs> and so we finally had the conversation but it was just like it was the last brick in the wall for me like telling him I was queer meant I was going to tell all my friends from from high school but that meant a lot to me that he accepted me as an example to other people Telling him and it not being a big deal, I was like, fuck, why didn't I do this earlier? Like, if I could have been the gay guy in high school, probably. My parents, being liberal, you know, educators, they were pretty cool when I came out to them, thankfully. But it was funny because I did it in the exact opposite order that I. Wished I'd had done because I decided to stay in Kansas the summer after my first year of college to work in an internship that my dad ar- had arranged. So he and I were in Derby together while my sister and mom went off to Colorado. And um, I got an STD. <laughs> it was just one of those situations where I was like, okay, well, this is it. There's no way I can access healthcare. Like, I didn't want to go to the public health department. Also, I had already come out at school, so I was just, like, kind of over the whole thing. So I was just, like, I had to tell my dad I think I need to go to the doctor. Because I actually didn't know what was wrong with me. And it was only until after I'd gotten the diagnosis from the family doctor that my dad was like, why do you have an STD? (laughs) And I was like, because I had sex. (laughs) he's like, who are you having sex with? And uh, I was like, yeah, I'm I'm gay. Sorry. (laughs) I didn't say sorry. He couldn't believe it. He was like completely floored. And I'm just like, really? (laughs) I haven't dated a girl for three years. And then he made me call my mom, like, who was at the cabin. And then my mom called my sister. I had wanted to tell my sister first, and then my mom, and then have my mom tell my dad. Like it happened the exact opposite way, but uh, they were pretty cool about it. All through high school, I was into acting. I thought I was going to be an actor. I thought I was going to have some kind of theater living. The second I came out, I never once wanted to go on stage and perform a role of any kind. (laughs) I was like, okay, I guess up until now, my role had been straight young Christian from Kansas, you know? And now, like I said, the second week of college I came out, I was just like, I'm starting to write my own story now. So, was like the co chair of the student gay organization. Everyone on campus knew I was a big homo, which was cool at SMU because that's as edgy as you needed to be, you know, like you didn't have to go out and get tattoos or do a lot of drugs, you know, you just say people to, that you were gay and you would immediately be the most edgy, cool person they'd ever met. So dated a little bit, you know, my first couple of years, but not a lot. The junior year of undergrad, a good friend had a friend of hers visit from Austin, this guy named and he came with his boyfriend. But like the second we sat down to dinner and I sat across from him at this Mediterranean restaurant, I was immediately enamored of him. Like it just hit me so hard. He was very sarcastic and super smart and also cute. I actually looked him up on Facebook today. And he's still hot. The reason I remember it was a Mediterranean restaurant is because like during dinner and for everything after that, I got so shit-faced drunk. It was like one of the worst drinking nights. And I was clearly just like trying to cope with the fact that there was this guy who was visiting who I just thought was like super cool. And he was there with his boyfriend, which for me was also super depressing because I was like, "Oh, I'll never find somebody as cool." You know, just the, the the evening kind of spiraled out of control. And at the end of the night, Lori, my friend, and brought me up from the car, I guess, and put me in a bed. And just as they were like about to step away, I just like vomited everywhere on the bed. <laughs> and like I distinctly remember there being falafel, like. And to this day, I cannot eat falafel for that reason. So I made quite an impression. Let's just say that after we met, and I actually started to write each other email, which at the time was super innovative and not typical. I had to go to the basement of our library to use the email servers, and he was at Texas A and M and did the same thing. So like our email correspondent had a lot of intention behind it. And he was a super good writer and super funny. You know, I just, I started falling more and more in love with him. Like the more emails that we would trade. Another reason why I was writing back was because it was obvious that he was flirting with me too. So I think if there hadn't been any interest on his part, would have just fizzled. But actually he was into me. We ended up being in New York for spring break that same year. But we're on totally different trips, but decided by corresponding that we would meet up in New York City. And of course, I was like super excited about this because it would finally be us one on one, you know, without his boyfriend there. (laughs) We had not hung out since I puked that one night, but we'd gotten so close on email. So we made plans to meet, you know, Washington Square Park and We hung out until pretty late, and so he offered to let me stay with them instead of going back to wherever my friend and I were staying. So we were in this girl's dorm room, and she was sleeping in one bed, and and he and I were were sleeping in the other, and I tried my hardest. I was like, I can't make a move. This just can't happen. He has a boyfriend, and the second he touched me i was just like off to the races (laughs) because like i finally had some kind of indication that he actually was interested in me physically it was really hot because like we were trying to be so quiet that we wouldn't wake his roommate but uh i was just so excited i probably came like immediately of course the next day was super awkward and we couldn't like have a conversation because his friend was hanging out with us too and long story short we each went home we traded emails some more and then he broke up with his boyfriend and dated me for the rest of oh you know what now that I think about it it was the spring break of my senior year I was so in love with him I mean I was in love with him enough that I would drive to fucking college station (laughs) and hang out it is like not a fun place to go it's not even fun driving there and back you know that's how deeply in love with them i was you know it was it was super exciting because i had never really been in love with anyone so i graduate and at the time i knew i was going to move to new york to live after undergrad and i had already made arrangements to work at this artist commune in upstate new jersey I was going to work there for the summer before I moved to New York City. So I had this, like, out date. So and I decided before I would leave that he and I would go to Taos together. Just as a sort of a goodbye trip. And things went south pretty quickly. We were driving there. And I could tell something was off already. I think he was just assuming that once I would move away that things would end. So... We got to Taos. I don't even remember where we stayed. must have been a hotel. Yeah, and just something was off for the whole trip, and it felt very forced and like you didn't want to be there. And So I shouldn't have been surprised when later in the summer I was at the artist commune, and he wrote me a letter, you know, breaking up with me, and he went back to his ex, and oh, I was so hurt. I just wrote him, like, the meanest letter back and actually sent it (laughs) and then never heard from him again. If I'd have stayed in Dallas or gone to live with him in Austin, we might still be together today. We had very good sexual chemistry, though. That's the other thing is that when we eventually did start to have sex, it was pretty, it was on. Which was also exciting because I think at the time I had never really, like, had sex with somebody who I was also deeply emotionally... Connected to. So that's probably why it was so good, you know. And I think it gave me a glimpse of, oh, okay, this is why people date and they're with people who they have a connection to. Cause, you know, when things work, they work. This is why I advocate so passionately for queer people to talk about sex and exchange ideas about what works and what doesn't. Because we deserve to have great sex, especially with people we love because it feels good and it brings us closer together. One encounter that I remember very fondly was I had moved to LA to go to film school and made a friend there who's still a very good friend. He's from Peru originally. But uh, we went for uh, spring break somewhere or some kind of, maybe it was New Year's. We decided to go to uh, Argentina and Brazil for a few days, for like a week. And we made the most of our opportunities with the men from those countries. <laughs> wow. Whew. Beautiful people. One occasion stands out we had gone to see my friend's friend in Porto Alegre, which is like a kind of a resort town in Brazil. It's south of Rio. It's in this beautiful sort of cove, you know, and it's, I think, a very rich city. And we went to a nightclub that night, and somehow, maybe my friend's friend knew the son of the town's mayor, who was totally out and had this amazing like entourage of just the most beautiful Brazilian men. And we all end up going back to his penthouse apartment in like downtown. And it was very like Bacchanal sort of scene in that we were all doing a lot of drugs and we were drunk and very horny and like, he and i would fuck for a while and then his friends would like walk in and do coke with us and then like walk out and then we would fuck some more and we would just like stay in bed naked while his friends like would walk in and have conversations with us (laughs) and my friend who i was there with i he was on a, a whole other wing of the apartment doing his own thing so it was kind of like i was in this weird glam gay brazilian scene that I'd never ever thought I'd ever have any access to. And it it was also just like a fun, very like flirty gay experience in that we knew we'd never see each other again. So there was never any risk of jealousy or guilt or anything. It was it was very like of the moment. And it was something that like I look back on my twenties and think of fondly. I mean I've had plenty of fun hookups since then. That that there was something that I was sort of like letting my hair down in a way that I was never really given myself permission to in the past. So that was fun. (laughs) I have a friend, a fuck buddy, who's also just a good friend who helped me survive the pandemic. Um, You know, we would hook up every week or so. So we were out of the pandemic, but we were hooking up one night a few months ago. And I think I had tried a new kind of weed that had a really big, like, effect on me and that it made me very, like, physically aroused. And I got very ambitious (laughs) with the fucking. I was top. And, oh, I think I had also rode my bike that same day. So I would sort of exerted myself, or maybe I rode my bike the day after we had sex. Anyway, come Monday, I could literally not get out of bed. Like, well, I attempted to get out of bed and my back was just like, nope. <laughs> and like, I could hardly walk to the bathroom. I was in such pain. I could hardly walk my dog. <laughs> I, was, I was like, okay, one, I'm old, two, I should have known better than to, like, not stretch out afterwards after vigorous sex and then also bike riding, both of which I love and I want to continue to do more of in the future. So, like, it got so bad that I had to ask a friend of mine to take me to the urgent care and sat in urgent care for, like, hours until they could finally get me some medication. I think that they were screening me for like potential drug abuse. Like they didn't want to just hand somebody some Oxycontin or whatever, which they didn't do, by the way, they didn't really give me any muscle relaxers, but they did give me some stretches to do, thankfully. And that ended up helping me get better. The cool thing about the whole event was that the exercises they gave me actually made sex not only easier, but way more fun. Like, for some of the stretches, they were all, like, core-related. And I realized when I did them, it made, like, sex so much more enjoyable. Like, so that was kind of cool to learn. I'm a good top. I think having my friend who was my COVID fuck buddy was almost exclusively a bottom. And then my boyfriend, even before that, pre-pandemic, was mostly a bottom. So I've had a lot of practice, more so than I ever had even living in LA or New York or Dallas. Like, yeah, so I've gotten pretty good at it. And not just one position, but switching it up a lot and not having... A predictability about the encounter I try to mix things up yeah I think that's important and maybe something that not a lot of people talk about because like the question is like it almost forces you to single something out and I do pride myself in not only being versatile but being creative you know and and sex with people in a consistent way only really interests me if we can continue to be exploratory and have fun you know nobody wants sex to be predictable or boring at least I don't want it to so yeah I think as I age I've gotten a better sense of yeah just having fun and mixing it up now and then that's super important I don't tend to be overly serious when I'm in bed with somebody I like to have fun and make jokes and laugh about it because it is kind of silly I think one frustration for me over the years has been the whole idea of relationship and how that is defined with any given person. I've had, you know, a fair amount of relationships over the years of varying success. It's been hard to really understand what a relationship is i still don't think i really have had the kind of relationship that i'm actually suited for like i find myself really just sort of bending to whoever i'm with and just doing what it is that they think a relationship is instead of really asking myself what do i want i think i've only just recently discovered what it is that i want and have been given the tools to articulate that because of doing fruit bowl you know i've had a few Interviewees describe themselves as a solo polyamorous, and there are descriptions of it. The more I think about it, the more I think that's that's probably what would suit me the best, which is that you always have some place to go where you can be by yourself and you can be alone. <laughs> You're like cohabitation for me just does not work, and it's taken me this long to really realize that. I have to have my own space. I have to have a place I can come back to at the end of the day where I know I'll just have peace and quiet and I won't be bothered by by anyone. And I hate that I equate relationships with being bothered, (laughs) but it's true. It's like every time I live with a boyfriend, I regret it. A lot of my interviewees have said, like, they don't want to get on board the relationship escalator. And I completely agree. I'm just not cut out for it i don't want to go grocery shopping with a partner <laughs> i don't want to look at furniture or decide on colors for the walls you know it's just i'm just not built out for it maybe it's from having gone to that boarding school knowing that i have independence it's something i really deeply value is alone time so that's taken me a really long time to figure out also the whole polyamory part like I think I could totally see myself as having more than one partner and just feeling differently about them or having different versions of love for them I'm just speaking like hypothetically now I don't really believe in the the one I think that's too much pressure to put on someone I don't think it's realistic to think that there's going to be one person that you can be with for your whole life that's going to fully fulfill you and give you what you need not to say that you know relationships are all about filling your needs but you know like I said I think I've been in enough of them where I just end up kind of forgetting about myself and giving away all of my decision making powers and really making bad decisions about what to do just because I'm supposed to want certain things at certain points, like moving in together or getting married. The idea of getting married is not attractive to me at all. It never really has been. So, yeah, I'm really hyper aware of it, especially, I think, because of social media and how much people value posting pictures of their relationships and also just media in general. It's so much about if you're with somebody if you're not with them, if you're divorcing, if you're in a relationship or not, if you're gonna have kids, if you're gonna get married, it just all feels so predictive and uninteresting to me. I think I would prefer the unfamiliarity and the the discovery process of kind of making it up on your own terms. That's the core of what I'm trying to say is that I feel like I finally realized that I can define being in a relationship however I want to. It's important to remember that and not just like forget myself when I'm in a relationship. I think sex is different now as compared to when I first came out in that, well, I know what I want much more clearly And it's not just the menu items of sex and sexual intimacy, but it's also the emotional needs that I have. One-offs do not interest me anymore. I'm not saying that I never do it, but each time I've done it recently, it's gotten less and less interesting to me. I'm not interested in having sex with people I'm never going to see again. I don't know. Maybe that just makes me sad. Well... What it is is that I just think sex is better when you know the person and you have a trust and a familiarity, but not too much in that you're like doing the same thing all the time. I really value my friends who I have sex with. I don't really like to say fuck buddies because I really think of them as friends that I have sex with. I think I'll know it when I see it, you know, if I choose to be in a relationship in the future, but I'm not currently, not in the sense that I could label it as such. But I just like having sex with people I know who I trust and who get me. Maybe I've just gotten lazier in my old age and not wanting to kind of sell people on the idea of being with me. You either want to or you don't. I don't really have time to try to get someone to have sex with me that doesn't interest me and it's just not fun. Like my friend Jason in his interview in my first episode of the first season said something that really made a deep impression on me which is that usually when you wanna have sex with somebody who doesn't really have interest in you but then you finally convince them, it's usually not that good. (laughs) Just the act of trying to convince someone you're worth being with That is not sexy. It's not fun either. I have a pretty diverse taste when it comes to different bodies and people to have sex with. So I don't have a laundry list that people have to achieve. (laughs) I mean, I'm picky, but I like a lot of different bodies. So that serves me well. I have to say like that probably wasn't true in my twenties. I probably wanted to be with people who were hot, who had great bodies. I tried to, like, date older guys in my 20s, but never really quite worked out. That's one thing that I've learned. In addition to not really wanting to do the relationship escalator, like, I'm also a lot more open-minded when it comes to age because I've achieved daddy status now. I do get attention from a lot of 20-somethings, and I'm okay with that. You know, I feel like I was into the dad bods when I was in my 20s, and... There's no reason why I can't be on the receiving end of that attention now. I think that people who are in their 20s have a lot to teach older people or to remind us what it was like in our 20s. And a lot of them are way more clear about what they want. I don't automatically have a paternal instinct when it comes to 20-somethings. Like, that doesn't interest me. Actually, functioning as someone's dad, that does not interest me. I don't want to tell them what to do with their lives or how to save money or where to get their health insurance from. You know, like they can do that with someone else. But not being with people that age, I think is, you know, shutting down something that could be really cool. Maybe I don't get a lot of attention now with guys my own age because most of them are partnered up or they're in throuples or Maybe they just don't want to date, like that ship has sailed. I just don't get a lot of attention from guys my age. And again, I'm okay with that. Maybe if they're older, they might want to get onto that relationship escalator. And I'm just like not prepared to do that right now. But I'm also not rejecting it completely. If someone wants to date me, then we're going to have to have a conversation about what that means. (laughs) And what the boundaries are. You know, that's something else I've learned is that You can make a relationship be whatever you want it to be. It's up to you. You have the power to decide. When I was in my 20s or 30s even, there was this pressure to like partner up and find a boyfriend. And I think I was in a lot of relationships for far too long, wishing that things would just work out and work on the long term, and not really knowing what work I actually needed to do or what I actually needed to say in order to convey what my expectations were. And now I'm just a lot more clear about what I want. And if I see something I like, I'm probably going to go for it, but on my own terms. That's super important to learn is that you can make it up however you want to. You don't have to assume these parameters that most people do when it comes to dating and what that means or doesn't mean. Somewhere along the line, I sort of realized that my path wasn't going to be your typical sort of American dream path. And I'm definitely at peace with that now. If I could go back in time and give my very scared little queer self some advice, Well, I would definitely tell myself, everything's gonna be okay. You're a strong motherfucker. I think for so long, I thought I was weak because I couldn't resist being gay. I couldn't wish it away. I couldn't pray it away. And I felt like I was a weak person because of that. But now looking back, I'm like, wow, I was really fucking strong. Even when I was so alone and thought I had HIV, and I had no one to talk to after I'd been raped. Like, I look back and I'm just like, God, how did I get through that? And I'm pretty really proud of myself for coming through on the other side. So I would say like to myself, yeah, just hang in there. <laughs> and you're a strong motherfucker and you'll get through this and, and I did.
2: Fruit Bowl interviews are edited for length and narrative clarity, and are approved by each interviewee before being released. Visit fruitbowlpodcast.com, where you can learn more about this episode, browse the episode archive, and watch original videos. Fruit Bowl collects histories from all different backgrounds and experiences cisgender women, trans and genderqueer individuals, black people, indigenous people, and people of color. It's only by collecting diverse stories that we can begin to see what unites us. Interested in sharing your story? Find out more about the interview process, including a full list of questions, a description of the collaborative interview process, and news about future production. Visit fruitbowlpodcast.com for links and contact information. Fruitbowl is produced independently without any corporate media infrastructure or full-time staff. Help support our efforts to collect, archive, and share personal stories about queer coming-of-age by making a small, monthly donation through Fruit Bowl's Patreon membership. Patrons get early access to episodes, behind-the-scenes updates, and exclusive video outtakes from each episode that are not available to the general public. Or promote your business by sponsoring an episode of Fruit Bowl or dedicate an episode to a loved one. Episode sponsorships and dedications are 100% tax-deductible through Fruit Bowl's fiscal partnership with Seattle's Northwest Film Forum. Fruit Bowl receives no direct funding from Northwest Film Forum, only the use of their nonprofit status to receive tax-deductible donations. Learn more at fruitbowlpodcast.com slash donate or write Dave at Fruitbull for more information. Social media platforms often censor mentions or depictions of queer sexuality. Accounts are often suspended or banned outright without notice or due process. As a result, Promoting Fruit Bowl is an uphill battle, so we rely on you to help spread the word. Tell your friends about Fruit Bowl, rate us on your podcast platform, or write a review on Apple Podcast. And, of course, you can also follow us, for now, on Twitter at Fruit Bowl Pod and Instagram and TikTok at Fruit Bowl Podcast. Fruit Bowl is created, produced, and edited by Dave Quantic. I'm Rebecca M. Davis. This has been a production of Cubed Media, all rights reserved. Thanks for listening.